Welcome, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. So glad to have you here. Season one is afoot, and we are kicking it off by exploring not just human nature, but particularly the facet of fathers and fathering, the impact and the influence they have on the lives of my guests. Hold tight, stay tuned, and listen in because we are about to journey into a series of conversations. It is incredible. Let's get into it. Let's get started. Here we go. All right, welcome to episode four. My guest is Chris Brown with the National Fatherhood Initiative. I'm very excited to share this conversation with you where Chris and I talked about a lot of issues around fathers and his work in supporting fathers. But before we do that, I want to just take a minute and say what a journey it's been. And thank you for those who've been following the first three episodes. I really appreciate you listening in. If you haven't heard those episodes, they're incredible. Thank you, Luis. Thank you, Araceli. Thank you, Jonah, for the conversations and the stories around your fathers. I've been hesitant to do a pre-show. One of the reasons I've been hesitant is because I found myself getting caught up in perfectionism. And when I was getting caught up in my perfectionism, I realized it just better to let the shows speak for themselves. And I really do think those conversations have been able to speak for themselves. Um, in this case, on this episode and with this show and with this guest, I, I do want to do a pre-show and there's a couple reasons for that. One of the reasons is it's a pivot. It's a real change from the deeply interpersonal stories of my guests with their fathers and what's going on in their life. In this case, we're pivoting more towards someone, Chris, who works in a, in a field and has a collective understanding of how we find, support, and create fathers. Um, Chris and I just met back in September when we recorded this interview. So our familiarity is not as, as deep as with my other guests who, who I, I know. And it's also the focus of it is looking at a wider view of what's going on in this space and how things can get done and are done to serve and support fathers. I also wanted to do a pre-show because at the end of the conversation, the call dropped. So I wasn't able to give a proper thank you and uh, a full gratitude and honoring of Chris for being on the show. So Chris, thank you so much for showing up, for having the conversation, for sharing your insights around the importance of fathers and what we can do and what you're doing. And especially, I want to say thank you for doing the work that you do. Uh, It's amazing to see, witness, to know that it's going on. It gives me a lot of heart and hope for uh, the unseen amongst us in the country who are doing important social good. So thank you so much. And that said, just so you know, Chris Brown is the president of the National Fatherhood Initiative, and he is an expert on fathering and teaching the know-how and building up men. Um, They have a lot of programs at the National Fatherhood Initiative. You can find some of those links on my website at howhumanswork.us. 
along the way, I do want to say that Chris is going to share some personal things that, that touch me. I hope they touch you and you can see the connection between his sense of purpose in life, where he's coming from and his own childhood experiences with his own father and the challenge that he faced and how that informed, shaped and oriented him towards showing up for dads. Chris Brown, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm really grateful for you joining me today to talk about fathering. Chris, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm honored, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. Most of my guests in this season have been people who don't necessarily do fathering work or fatherhood initiatives. So I'm going to go straight to the conversation of fathers and how fathers work in our lives. So why do, why do dads matter? Well, if you look at the research over many of the past decades, there's a huge body of research that shows that when fathers are involved in the lives of their children, they have a much greater chance of being uh, healthy in, in all aspects so the physical, social, emotional, spiritual, etc. So um, we, in fact, have a publication called Father Facts, which is now in its eighth edition. And it's the most comprehensive collection of data and research related to, one, the importance of dads in children's lives, and secondly, what happens when children grow up without a father in the home. Yeah. So um, that's, that's quite widely used um, by uh, academicians, uh, by people in the field who are working with dads. It's used to convince politicians, for example, and other decision makers that, hey, maybe we need to do a local fatherhood initiative to try to get more dads connected with their kids. Why is it challenging for fathers, in your estimation, to actually be involved? Well, in most cultures, um, both uh, the broader American culture and subcultures, um, you know, immigrant cultures and subcultures within America, many men are raised to, um, you know, focus on uh, being a financial provider. Uh, they don't have a holistic concept of being uh, an involved father. So obviously financial provision is important, mm -hmm. but even more important for kids is the emotional, social, and spiritual involvement uh, of their dads. We often like to say at National Fatherhood Initiative that kids spell father involvement T-I-M-E, so it's time. And so when we look cross-culturally, I mean, really, kids need the same thing from their fathers, uh, and they need that involvement. And we do not, unfortunately, raise our boys with that perspective. We do a much better job of raising our girls to be involved moms than we do raising our boys to be involved dads. I really like what you're saying there about the, the, the monetary resource identity, which is obviously so fundamental. But then I'm thinking about, well, if you're in a stressed community and you have you know, poverty or lack of resources, um, and then you don't have even that tool to be a fatherhood in that way financially, that there's a challenge that comes along with that, that there's, there's no complementary point of view of what makes a good father. Yeah, and I'd argue just the opposite. There is a complementary view, and it's really uh, put out there and implemented by 
the many partners we have across the country who run our fatherhood programs and use our fatherhood resources. Uh, many of those organizations work with dads who are, you could call them disenfranchised, at risk. Um, yeah. But many of these dads um, are, you know, employment challenged. Either they're unemployed or they're underemployed. And so when they come into these fatherhood programs, they learn that, you know, this is not just about financial provision. Mm -hmm. It's also about this more holistic aspect of father involvement. Um, and yet many dads uh, believe that, you know, they need to get that financial piece in place first. So many of these organizations provide training around how to help these guys get employment with certain businesses in their community where the dads graduate from the fatherhood program and they are immediately placed into a well-paying job. So that's where it really happens is at that community level. I'm, I'm really interested in stress. And one of the things when I look at the consequences of lack of, what do you call it? Father absence, right? Correct. Why, why is that the phrase? Why is it father absence? When we say father absence and you look at the data on our website, uh, and this comes from the Census Bureau, 19.7 million children in this country grow up without a biological step or adoptive father. So when we talk about father absence, mm -hmm. it's not just absent the biological father, but it's absent a step or adoptive father. I see both stress and pressure on fathers, partly like you're saying, there's a narrow imagination and definition of the role of father. But I also see the cascade of stress down into the lives of the children, you know, that there's more behavioral problems, more likely to have abuse and neglect, that there's a greater likelihood for crime and drug and alcohol issues, you know, and it's just so like, when you think about fathers, aside from the technical details of the problem of their, of their absence. Do you have an image or an imagination or a, a, a kind of a poetic feeling way of talking about why fathers are important? Yeah. Um, and one of the ways that we talk about it is that, uh, you know, fathers uh, need to provide three things. Uh, and that is they need to nurture, they need to provide, and they need to guide. And so that in many ways encapsulates that holistic approach to involvement that I mentioned earlier. Um, and you're right. I mean, there are many, many stresses that are put upon children, that are put upon dads and moms uh, when fathers are either completely absent or maybe they're in the home, but they're not as involved as they should be. And it, there's just a litany of poor outcomes for children uh, in terms of them having a higher risk than children who grow up with involved fathers. Now, that doesn't mean that every single child who grows up with an absent father is going to be doomed to failure. We're very clear about that as well. But when you look at it from a population-based mm -hmm. perspective, uh, we yeah. see the research is very clear. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point because creating uh, maybe a fear mindset and, and a negative narrative around that as an automatic as uh, outcome is 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 good to clarify that's not the case. One of the things that happened um, as I've been working on this project is 
I got turned on to some of your colleagues and then and introduced to you. One of the things I, I didn't understand is there is, like you said, a network of local and national providers really working on this issue around teaching and investing in men to be invested fathers. This is impressive to know. And for people who don't have this part of of this, I guess, social good happening, you know, social care happening and teaching and education. Give my listeners a portrait of, of, of what is going on in this space. Uh, I've been involved in this work for more than 20 years. Uh, uh, our organization was founded in uh, 1994. Uh, so we've been around a long time and I joined right at the end of 1999. And the growth in programs and services for fathers that are specifically for dads uh, in communities has been phenomenal. You'd be hard-pressed to, to find necessarily a program that has a name that specifically mentions dads. Some, some do, and there are, there are quite a few of them. But the vast majority of organizations are organizations that do lots of different things and serve lots of different populations. It might be a YMCA. Uh, we do a ton of work with uh, corrections-related agencies and incarcerated fathers. You really have to kind of kind of search for for these providers, and that's one of the things that we help people do uh, in terms of finding partners of ours across the country. Is we have a database called the Father Source Program Locator that allows someone to go in anywhere in the country, look at a map, locate organizations that in some form or fashion work with us, and that's a way to get one that's connected with a local service provider who might be able to help them. And two, also to build relationships among these different providers. Because what we've also seen over time is the launching of uh, community-wide, county-wide fatherhood initiatives. And if I understand from your website correctly, part of what you guys do is you help uh, organizations up-level their, their their father knowledge and the importance of fathers and really include it in their programming. So in the array of services they have, they can address the role of a healthy father in the family unit and in the community. Is that correct? You can think about the father involvement work within the broader context of family strengthening work. So it it is about strengthening the family. And many of these organizations that we partner with do Uh, other types of programs uh, to strengthen families. They might be involved in healthy marriage or relationship education, Um, a GED, help getting a driver's license. I mean, there's just a a whole range of things. And in fact, we talk about the organization, talk with the organizations that we train on our programs and resources that a best practice is to embed it within a much broader array of services that address all of the needs that fathers have. Not just that piece that, you know, okay, I'm a dad and here's how I interact with my children. What are these other kind of tangential pieces that I need to do a better job in, in order to be the best possible father that I can? We don't approach this work as if we're in a silo. We understand that it is an integral part of broader interventions at the community level that can really help dads be better dads. 
gosh, there's so much to ask here, but the, I think the relevant thing for me in my mind right now is just some stories. What, what kind of stuff have you seen happen? Well, I'll, I'll give you a, an example that comes uh, quickly to mind. Are you familiar with Prison Fellowship? I am not. Okay. So it is uh, probably the largest ministry in the world that goes into prisons and works with incarcerated individuals on a range of issues. So several years ago, we worked with them to create a Christian version of our Inside Out Dad program for incarcerated fathers. Uh, That is now the program that they use across the U.S., and I think it's also used in Canada and some other locations internationally. The feedback that we get from dads who go through Inside Out Dad Christian, um, but also go through the secular Inside Out Dad, we get cards and letters every month uh, from dads, and we respond to them. For a, a man, a father who's going through the inside out, dad, I think is the name of the program. What are they getting in there? What, what happens for them? Uh, we've designed our programs around universal concepts of good fathering cross-culturally. We felt it was best to center it around certain universal principles and then allow facilitators at the local level to customize it based on the unique group that they of dads that they happen to be working with at the time. What are those principles? Self-awareness, caring for self, fathering skills, parenting skills, and relationship skills. And then all of the content in Inside Out Dad and our other programs is built around those characteristics or those traits and kind of building them up. So the first part of our programs typically start with focusing on the man first and on the father second, based on the notion that it's difficult to be a good father if you're not a good man first. That is so on Um, point. I'm sorry to interrupt, Chris, but that is so on point because earlier in the conversation, I know from my own experience that how I feel about myself as a human, a man in this case, how adapted I am how successful and confident I feel is so directly correlated to my parenting skills. Absolutely. You can't put someone in a toxic condition and expect them to express good fathering characteristics. I feel really strongly about that. So thank you for saying that. Sure. Yeah. And that's, again, part of the work that our partners do at the local level is really helping these dads get out of that kind of toxic situation. Uh, building them up as men and then building them up as fathers and as partners. What's a good father, one or two, you know, really important fathering skills to have? One of the things that, and this is uh, partly a, an attitude that leads to uh, certain skills is uh, many men uh, and, and moms as well are raised to think that discipline and punishment are the same thing. Uh, when they're not. So uh, our programs teach dads, for example, that discipline is about teaching and guiding. We help them understand that you know, punishment can be effective, but it should be used as a last resort instead of a first choice. So we teach them discipline techniques that teach and guide their children rather than punish them. 
we teach them when they do need to punish their children, what are nonviolent ways of doing that. And finally, the importance of repairing the damage that's caused, particularly with punishment. And I think that's what a lot of parents don't realize is that when you punish a child, it causes damage between you and that child. And it's important as a father to be able to recognize that. And when the punishment is done to repair that damage Mm -hmm. um, by talking about, for example, what you did as opposed to who you are. So closely related to that, another skill is not labeling your children in a specific way based on a single incident um, of, let's say, misbehavior. So, for example, not saying, you know, you're a bad person for doing X, but what you did X is a bad thing. Um, If that makes, if that distinction makes sense, your children's character, um, you are helping them understand that certain actions are not appropriate, but that that doesn't reflect necessarily on who they are as people. Uh, Too many parents, unfortunately, do the opposite. And it really hurts their children's self-esteem, their self-concept, their self-image. I mean, it's, it's, it's right in there. Of, it's not just good parenting or good fathering skills. It's just good human relationship skills. Um, and I love okay. how much social science research is coming out about how we understand human nature, how we work, how we thrive. I'm sure you're familiar with the adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. In fact, in particularly when we uh, train uh, facilitators of the Inside Out Dad program for incarcerated fathers, we cover ACEs. Because uh, incarceration itself uh, is an adverse childhood experience, having a, an incarcerated parent. Yeah, I mean, as, a, as institutionalized forms of father absence, right? It's so, it's very problematic. I'm curious how you found yourself, Chris, in this work. Did you know that it was what you wanted to do? Did you just fall into it? How, how'd you get into this work? Yeah, I did. In fact, uh, there's kind of, I share with people when they ask me this question uh, that it comes from two places. One is professional. The other is personal. On the Mm -hmm. professional level, uh, I'm an anthropologist by training. And so one of the things that I had been doing on a personal level is working through my own father absence issues. And I'll get back to that in a second. But realizing as an anthropologist that So much of what was happening in our culture around father absence had to do with cultural norms and values, et cetera, that discouraged involved fatherhood. And so uh, I started working with some some folks who recognize the same thing, and we started to do some things locally uh, in the Austin, Texas area to build up organizations' capacity to serve dads here. And then the um, uh, governor's office, uh, when uh, Bush was governor here, acquired some funding and decided they wanted to start a statewide fatherhood initiative. Uh, They put out an RFP for it, and National Fatherhood Initiative won it. And uh, I then got connected with National Fatherhood Initiative And so uh, initially, we established an office here in Texas with a few staff. And uh, over time, I grew through the organization 
to become a vice president and eventually the president. But, you know, what has driven me even more, Jeff, is the fact that, uh, you know, I grew up without, without a father, not in the sense of physical absence, but emotional absence, spiritual absence. So my dad and mom were married uh, until I got um, into high school and they eventually divorced. Up to that point, I really didn't have much relationship with my father. We were not close. We did not do things together. Um, he was closer to my brother than I was. He, you know, is a, a very successful organist and harpsichordist. He had people come from all over the, the, the world just to study with him. It's a very talented, very intelligent individual. Um, and yet it was very difficult for him to find time to spend with me and uh, with my younger brother, particularly around interests that weren't his. You know, we had a very contentious relationship growing up. I tried for years to get my dad to play catch with me. So, something, you know, you just think about dads and kids doing, you know, particularly dads and boys. And he refused to do it. And eventually, I guess I pestered him enough to where he agreed to do it one day. So I took him in the backyard, gave him one of my gloves. We started to throw the ball back and forth. And lo and behold, he could actually catch and throw a ball. I didn't know he could, <laughs> he could do that. <laughs> and so um, as we got uh, warmed up, I started to throw it a little bit harder. And then I just hummed one in and, you know, hit his mitt really hard. And, and it's kind of a cool thing because usually they say, well, that was a nice throw. Well, my dad didn't. Um, he kind of came across the yard, put his finger in my face and said, I knew this was a bad idea uh, and I'm never going to do it again. Wow. Now that has a, a link to what eventually happened with our relationship. So at that point, I was about 12 years old. I just decided I was not going to try to, you know, have a relationship with my father. And, you know, again, my parents eventually got divorced and he was out of the house and that was it. Well, in my early to mid twenties, I started to reach back out to him and it took about five years, but we ended up developing uh, a much closer intimate relationship. And uh, we're now quite close. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's been a, a wonderful grandfather to my two daughters. Um, but that that event, that playing catch, it wasn't until I got old enough that I realized that the reason he didn't want to do that was because his hands were his life. That's how he provided for us. That was his profession. And he didn't want to injure his hands in any way. Now, he didn't communicate that to me. You know, I eventually used that to forgive the absence he had in my life. And I think that's one of the things that we do with dads in our programs is get them to a point where they can, if possible, forgive their own fathers for being absent from, from their lives, because that simply helps them to be uh, better fathers to their own children once they can forgive and not carry that anger and frustration into the relationships they have with their own children. 
that's good that you're in a good place with your dad. That's, that's, um, that's great. I'm curious in those years, did you have father figures who were there for you? Yeah, I, I, I didn't. Uh, we, my mom and dad moved about as far away from their parents as they could uh, and their relatives. So there was not a, a relative per se. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had some coaches who were, you know, good guys, but no, none that really sort of mentored me. And the friends that I had growing up, the close friends, I mean, I hung out with them and their fathers, but their dads were not the kind that would sort of put their arm around you and mentor you and mm-hmm. talk to you about your situation. So mm-hmm. been one of the, I would say, difficult things in my own just personal development is not having, you know, that father figure or figures uh, as I as I age. Now, what I did experience in my uh, early to mid-20s when I went to graduate school is I found a group of guys who also were trying to work through their own issues of father absence. Mm-hmm. And that's where we kind of had a developed a, a group mentoring dynamic, uh, just reading through certain books and talking about those books and just talking about our experiences. You know, while I didn't have a father figures at, at that point, at earlier in my life, I definitely had other men who were open enough to uh, talk about these issues that uh, it really helped me to grow and heal. That's good. So would you say you've done quote unquote men's work, like worked in groups and had, you know, brotherhoods and done deep conversations, healing work. Has that been part of your journey? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Very important. It's interesting because it's like your dad was there, but he wasn't. So it, and I, and I mean, there's no perfect fathers or fathering for sure um, that I've seen. And even really good fathers who have a certain set of skills might not be well-rounded in other ways. Do you, do you consider that like an adverse childhood experience, like subjectively? Like, do you feel like, yeah, I didn't really have someone who was there that loved me and looked after me and protected me and buffered me from the, the challenges of formation and growing a mind and a heart and becoming a human? Well, certainly from the male perspective. Now, my yeah. mother is a wonderful uh, she's fantastic. I often talk about her as my hero. <laughs> yeah. Um, she uh, she was just fantastic. So from that perspective, I think she definitely helped me to understand what it means to be a, a, a connected human. But you know, certainly not from a, from a male perspective. And I think that's you know that's one of the things the research shows is that children benefit from the unique gifts that moms and dads bring to parenting. And so when you only get half of that, you know, it's certainly not as good as getting all of that. And um, that's where, you know, hopefully father figures step in and many children do have those father figures and it's wonderful. So you're making me get very close to gender questions and same sex families and, and, and that, but I want to stick for a little longer with the more personal experience and, one of the things I resonate with with about you and, and having this conversation and hearing a little bit more about your story is father hunger and, and, and the need to uh, to be seen, acknowledged, um, understood, 
And uh, my parents had a, a somewhat volatile relationship and my dad had had some very serious, uh, aggressive, punitive strategies as a primary way of, of, of being a family member. He had other things too. Like, uh, you know, when you start telling the baseball mitt story, I remember I was really hating my first season in baseball and didn't feel like I had the coordination. And he took me out and worked me through it. And he was there and, you know, I, I can still remember when he threw me a soft pitch ball and I just cracked it, you know, for the first time I felt like, Oh, that's what it's like. And he lit up, he was happy. And he's like, you could do it, you know, but in my mind, I'm like, yeah, but that was underhand, you know, but, but still he would, he, he took that moment, you know, he brought his friend out. He took that moment. And I have other moments through my life with my dad, which were really cool, but there was other moments where his anger and his inability to, negotiate his own emotional territory and stresses um, came out in toxic ways. There's no other way to say it. But I ended up with a a deep resentment and mistrust of men, um, particularly their capacity for violence. And, you know, there's other ways in which the culture illustrates that. So it's not just my father alone, but but I I had this deep father hunger. I had this other hunger. So I started seeking out uh, mentors, men's work. Um, from a very young age, I went on my first men's retreat when I was 19 up in the Redwoods in Mendocino. And so I, I got this early exposure to uh, how a circle of men can nurture each other, basically, help each other attune to uh, conflicts, emotional challenges, relationship struggles. And it became a very much a through line through my life. I was able to reconcile in a deep way with my father because he finally decided to see me in a way when I started, I think I was 25, started to see and show up and be like, okay, I need to be here in a different way and made his own form of amends and and presence and apologize for his mistakes. And I guess I'm going towards two things here, Chris. One is this, this kind of shared acknowledgement that you know, at the most basic level, there's all the facts and figures, and but it's that direct quality of being seen and being related with and knowing that you matter to someone. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a central job of a parent to help their child feel valued in all the ways that they need to be valued. And you know, one of the things that we see and that there have been a number of really great documentaries done in recent years on fatherhood, uh, particularly uh, those that focus on um, the communities of color where father absence has been most prevalent. And when you hear the kids, you know, interviewed or, you know, adult children interviewed, you know, that often comes up, you know, is just the fact that my dad wasn't here. Why didn't he like me? Why didn't he want me? And, and they, the, the children take it so personally, as if somehow it's their fault, <laughs> you yeah. know, when it's anything but. So I think you're, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's the underlying piece for all of these statistics that we see around father absence is that, that, that value piece, that, um, you know, love of, someone who is, you know, critical to you. And that's what in part places kids at greater risk of these poor outcomes. Yeah. 
there's a few things on my mind, but before we leave you, I want to know if you have like a personal mission. I'm sure the National Fatherhood Initiative has a mission, but do you have a personal mission? I'll, I'll tell you what mine is to kind of prime you to give you time if, if you need to think about it. But mine is, I'm really interested in ending the the war on human nature. I think there's, if you look at, and nature itself, but I think humans, we, my perspective is that humans are not totally at peace with our nature in a number of ways and that there's subtle battles that we have where we are quarreling and quibbling and that that particular, you know, existential condition is, can be seen in a lot, in a lot through human behavior. So one of the things I'm, my personal mission is to help reconcile, help individuals reconcile their, their relationship with how we work. That's why my podcast is How Humans Work. That's why I'm, I'm interested in human nature. That's why I'm interested in fathering as a function of human nature. So um, do you have a personal mission? It's not a personal mission. It's uh, what, what's called a personal philosophy. The personal philosophy kind of infiltrates, or I want it to. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. <laughs> uh, the personal philosophy piece is to embrace life with compassion for self and others. Um, I've had a hard time in my life uh, having compassion for myself. Not so much for others, but for myself. Uh, to commit with focus to what matters most. I mean, I think that's a that's a, a key to being successful in anything yep. that you do. Uh, to learn all ways and to challenge assumptions with an open mind. I think one of the biggest issues we have in our country is, these days is confirmation bias. Uh, and so, the uh, some of the, the fundamental choices that I've made is uh, to be the predominant creative force in my life, uh, choose to be healthy, and choosing to be free. And then finally. Um, primary choices, I choose to focus my professional life on a positive social impact that will leave the legacy. That's been a big driving uh, factor in my work at, at NFI has been leaving that legacy. And as I shared sometimes with staff, and they don't necessarily like this, and with my family, if I walk out in the street and get hit by a bus uh, an hour from the time we finish this interview, I will have accomplished a lot. Wow. Um, I love the clarity. Uh, I appreciate you being willing to share it. I know I kind of put you on the spot with it, but uh, get those are very well thought out, cultivated attitudes and uh, approaches philosophical. So thank you. I wanted, sure. I wanted to spend a little more time, if you have it, talking about people of color, so many layers of, of advantage of, for being white versus being a person of color. And then just, you know, the idea of gender in itself, fathers, mothers, and this, this more gender fluid world. And what do you think about each of those? Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, communities of color, obviously they've been, as I mentioned earlier, most impacted by uh, father absence. Uh, the good news is that we've seen a slow decline in the number of black children growing up without their fathers. And that's something that nobody talks about. And so whenever I, you know, get an opportunity to come on a podcast like this or to do a presentation, I make it a point to share that. It's still unacceptably high, much higher than other uh, ethnic and racial groups, but it, it's part of the good news. But we're seeing uh, uh, the most rapid rise in uh, the number of Hispanic children growing up without their dads. There's definitely a, a need, and many of the partners that we work with serve dads of color in helping them 
you know, to be better dads. Just to stop at that point and, and like, I'm like, okay, what, what's my relationship to that? Right. What can I do in relationship to that? And one of the things I am seeing as a, as a indirect solution is from the programs and understand I've, I've learned that the red zones and the disenfranchisement from being able to own home and home ownership in the, in the forties and fifties and earlier versions of that made a huge difference in the income gap and the wealth in, in family systems racially. So for me, I'm going, well, investing in people of color who have been disenfranchised in terms of long-term family wealth, that home ownership is actually kind of related to this issue around fathering. I mean, I don't know if you see those kind of connections, but I'm, uh, that's where I'm going. What can I do? What's my relationship here? Yeah, the, there's certain some connections there. Now, I, I can't share with you anything that I'm aware of uh, on the research front. Doesn't mean that that's, that doesn't exist. But, uh, you know, I, I really can't speak so much to that piece. Okay. Um, what, but what about but just what, the answer? What can an average anybody do to support uh, fathering in more challenged communities? Well, I think one is, uh, you know, looking for organizations that either serve or want to serve dads and volunteering to run a fatherhood program. So that's uh, probably the most practical thing that you can do. Great. The second thing you can, you can do that through the National uh, Fatherhood Initiative. Right. That father source locator I mentioned earlier Great. can help you locate organizations in your community. On a broad scale, you could start a fatherhood initiative in your community. Mm -hmm. And we have an entire process for that called the community mobilization approach uh, that we've used in communities across the country that end up starting broad-based fatherhood initiatives. So if you want to have a, a broader impact than just on, you know, from a direct service standpoint, that's, that's much more of a kind of a, a cultural approach to addressing father absence on a wide scale in a community. And as far as, um, you know, changing gender norms, you know, in terms of, you know, what's acceptable for men and women to do really has nothing to do with what children need. They need the same things from their fathers and mothers, whether dad's a stay-at-home dad uh, or mom's a stay-at-home mom, whether, you know, dad's, you know, and you see this, uh, may be the more quote-unquote nurturing individual and moms not as nurturing. At the end of the day, kids need the same thing. So, um, you know, when people bring up the issue of changing gender norms and how that's affected parenting, it's definitely affected parenting. But at the end of the day, the kids need the same thing from both parents. Yeah. So it's about just focusing on the capacity of the adults in the room, whoever they are. Right. What about... Trans, trans men uh, programs, are, you, are any of your programs serving that particular that population? They're not. And the research on, you know, that population, same-sex couples, is only beginning to, to grow uh, in terms of what, for example, we know is similar mm -hmm. uh, to heterosexual couples uh, and uh, raising children uh, to what might be different. Mm -hmm. um, and raising children in a same-sex household. And then, of course, you've got transgender and you've got all sorts of other um, individuals in, in the LGBTQ community who you know, want and are parents. 
Um, what we talk about now is the fact that, you know, regardless of sexual orientation, and again, I come back to this, children need the same thing. And so we, uh, when people ask us, for example, is it appropriate for uh, a same-sex male couple to go through our fatherhood programs, we say absolutely, absolutely. It has nothing to do with their their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, they're going to learn things that are going to improve their relationship, communication, uh, co-parenting, uh, you know, all sorts of things. It's something I'm curious about, but actually don't have a lot of knowledge about. So thank you for entertaining the questions and answering them and just being open to, to the inquiry. Um, I'm feeling really complete. I'm feeling like, wow, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate what you're doing most of all. And then your own personal uh, journey, you know, just as a, you know, as a son and as a father um, to have a time just to, share share that and talk with you so i appreciate that very much you bet. one of you bet. the uh, one of the things i'm doing because i um i it might be my, my it's my fairness kind of guilt wiring because i'm always like asking questions i'm the questioner as it were being the host i think i like to have fair play here and just if you have a question for me i want to turn the tables here and, and if you have anything you're like hey You've been asking this. Where are you coming from? Whatever it is, I want to um, open that up to you. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, and I might have missed this earlier, and I apologize. Uh, I assume you have kids. Yeah, I have two daughters. Um, I have a sixteen-year sixteen-year-old daughter Abigail and a thirteen-year-old daughter Mirabelle, and they're in eleventh and eighth grades, and they're remote learning right now, and they are amazing. I grew up with three brothers, um, so. It was incredibly novel to to witness um, girls and, and watch, and still is their their journey. So I'm I'm a, I'm a father of daughters. Okay, well I am too. I've got uh, two daughters, 25 and 22, and yeah. so my question to you, Jeffrey, is um, at this point in their life, what in terms of what you've seen what would you say has been the most challenging time for them? Well, uh, I think for my younger daughter, when she moved, we moved communities within the same county. And when she did her move from the one school at the end of fifth grade to the new community at sixth grade, that was very challenging for her. It took her a year, but she did that really, really well. So um, that was hers. My older daughter, I would say there's been more than one that come to mind. Um, early primary school, you know, every Monday going to school was a battle, really. It was very difficult. There was a lot of emotions and, and stress. Um, and then middle school, um, I think it was seventh grade. She had a, a really rough social year. And then ninth grade, when she did a year at a Catholic private school, um, was academically very stressed out. So there's a, a three-way tie <laughs> in her journey. Well, the, the middle school piece is what I was looking for. You know, for both my girls, the most challenging time, and I hear this of, from dads of other girls, is, uh, is middle school. It can be a very, very difficult time for girls. You know, in high school, it's, uh, it's a little bit easier for them. And, and with boys, it seems to be a little bit of the opposite, where 
you know, middle school is okay, but, uh, you know, high school is a challenging time. Now, obviously it varies based on the, on the child, but yeah, it's, um, you know, it's very interesting raising girls. My, uh, oldest just got engaged. All right. Yeah. Getting married within the next couple of years and my yeah. younger daughter just to, uh, her first teaching job. So she's actually teaching kids virtually right now. <laughs> what a way so, to start. Uh, that's got, that's, I mean, I don't want to make it bad or difficult, but I'm going, wow, that's a hard way to um, start a teaching career, but good for her for being in there and doing it. Yeah. And then, um, if, you know, one piece of advice that, you know, unsolicited that I'll, I was going to actually you. ask, I was going to be like, okay, since we're here, you're, you're nine years ahead of me in the, in the parenting cycle. Um, what's, yeah, what do you got? Should your daughters choose to go to college and should we choose to get this COVID thing under wraps? <laughs> uh, definitely consider having them study abroad for a semester or two. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, our older daughter went to Dublin. Did she go to Trinity? Uh, she went to, no, uh, University College Dublin. Yeah. And um, our younger daughter went to uh, Italy and it was just, just great experience for both of them and something that we were really happy we were able to, you know, provide for them. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please follow us on your favorite streaming platform and share our podcast with your community and friends. All music is composed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people find peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.com.